Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. All right, bit of a funny episode here. Bit of a late night episode for us. This is going to kick off a few episodes where the Winged Wheel Podcast is going to take it remote. And I think for the first time in... I don't know, you guys are going to have to help me how many years. Where were you working on? Five plus years? It's going to be Brad and Evan rocking without me as of the next episode you hear and then the one after. So I'll be taking a little bit of a break, uh, just stepping away for a couple episodes, enjoying some much delayed honeymoon time, but then I'll be back with you guys. You guys ready? Actually, you I, don't, I shouldn't even ask if you're ready. You're both excited. Yeah. The monkeys are about to run the zoo. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Horses, hospitals, something like that. Whatever. If by some miracle a podcast gets out and you two don't just take a free vacation, I I wish um, I wish everyone's ears the best of luck. But no, you guys will rock it. It'll be good. I think finally a lot of people are, will enjoy a winged wheel podcast without me. But lots to talk about this episode. And this is a special episode because not only are we going to cover in a delayed manner... Uh, the last two Red Wings games, not including the Montreal game, which will have happened by the time you, the listener, are hearing this. We also have a Red Wings roundtable featuring Ken Daniels and Max Boltman. I'll get into all that in a second. First, folks, welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast, here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this remote episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're going to be covering two Red Wings games, their loss against New York and their win against Chicago. This is a pre-recorded segment that's going to go into the Sunday episode, as you're now listening. So this won't cover the Montreal game and anything that happens in the interim. We are also going to be discussing updates on the Patrick Kane signing with Detroit, and then we'll be getting into the Red Wings roundtable featuring Ken Daniels and Max Boltman to their... I should say first to their credit and to their defense, that was also pre-recorded. That was done about a week beforehand. So uh, I gave them kind of a thankless task on that one. So a little bit of a hodgepodge episode, but some really good content for you. Before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know that griffinshockey.com slash WWP is the link you want to go to. If you want to get tickets to Winged Wheel Podcast Night with the Grand Rapids Griffins, it is our version, our Grand Rapids version of Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA in partnership with the Detroit Red Wings. So we're taking the show to the AHL is on Saturday, January 27th of 2024. We are going to be at Van Andel. We're going to be recording a pregame live recording the Winged Wheel Podcast. It will include Dan Watson, head coach of the Griffins, as well as other Griffins players. If you want, there are tickets that include a sweet Winged Wheel podcast, Grand Rapids Griffins co-branded hat. And then if you don't want the hat, you can also get tickets without it. So again, griffinshockey.com slash WWP to get your tickets. Both us and the team are blown away by how many and how fast the tickets are selling out. So we actually you know, set up a whole other batch of them. So the hats aren't quite gone yet, but we anticipate they'll go quickly. So get your tickets today. Again, griffinshockey.com slash WWP. Okay, let's start by talking Patrick Kane. So from last episode to now, the emergency episode to now, which in terms of actual recording time was like 48 hours for us, the Red Wings have made official the signing of Patrick Kane. He passed his physical and, and has officially been announced as a member of the Detroit Red Wings. Yes, that is extremely weird to say still. And there was the introductory press conference where some of the process was illuminated and, you know, some of it was just a lot of GM and, and new player speak, but all of it good stuff. So 
With Patrick Kane joining the team, I think the comments that stood out to me most from Steve Eisman were regarding how impressed they were with his recovery. The team doctors were especially impressed with the recovery. People talked a lot about the uh, comparisons between Steve Eisman and Patrick Kane and playing late in their careers with you know some pretty severe injuries and uh, still making the most as elite players. Eisman made a note to say medical procedures have come much further than when he was doing it on a bum knee. And so for that to all kind of be coming into place and for them to have optimism on Kane's hip, that was actually pretty promising and I thought somewhat substantial. Yeah, I think the one point we probably didn't talk about enough when, you know, expressing our pessimism to his recovery to this injury was the fact that he played all of last year with basically one hip and was still 0.7 points per game, roughly. So if the Red Wings are impressed with his recovery, he said he's feeling better than he's felt in a long time. I guess that is a bigger reason than op- for optimism about him bouncing back to what we hope he can be and less on the pessimistic, oh, you know, these guys have failed coming back from this surgery. So obviously he will too. And we're Wings fans. We shouldn't need to stretch that much for optimism, but it is a reason for optimism. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's first, first press conference, you know, everything right was said, you know, the hype is probably at an all-time peak right now with Patrick Kane about to make his, his appearance sometime soon. I would just like to see him play at this point. Because you can talk all you want, but until the bodies start flying out on the ice and the big boys start hitting one another, to me, it's it's all just talk. And I'm glad everybody's super excited. But until the, the first minute's played, the first shift is played, I'm still the same old person I was. Well, Evan not being changeable is absolutely not new for this show. But I think Kane was talking a lot about you know having to make plays with essentially a stiff leg and keeping his hip uh, immobilized. And and that's a good point, Brad. He did have to do quite a bit of that already. So we've seen him produce with it. Also, we did talk about this last episode, but he discussed, you know, looking into the Red Wings, watching tape, discussing their systems, talking to that, uh, to New Zealand alone about that and understanding how he might fit into the team. He's always said the right things. It's, it's very, like we say, GM speak, like player speak, like player interviews. It's very typical. Kane's well versed in, in the platitudes, I'll call them. So he's going to have to earn his spot. Nothing's going to be handed to him, et cetera, et cetera. You know for a fact that he's going to come in and be paired with Debrinket in some kind of way as early as makes sense. And that's not a bad thing, but it, you know, speaking to Kane and the Red Wings, like we talked last episode of the other places he might have wanted to go, and and that can be true, but he also really does seem to have, one, a soft spot in his heart for the Red Wings with his ties to the area, and two, a genuine belief in the team that they can do at least something. So, yeah, you're right, Brad. Like, we shouldn't have to stretch this far for optimism, and I think I have no problem with how... I don't know, a realistic or objective we were being last episode, but for fans who want to be more optimistic, I think there's enough there to say that this could be something genuinely beneficial. And that's, that is part of what we said last episode. Like if this does move forward in a way where the hip isn't a complete hamper to him, yeah, then it it could be extremely beneficial. I mean, we're still in the percentages phase of talking about this. Some people are, I'm 75% convinced he's going to come back and be a great player. Other people are, I'm 10% convinced, you know, I was, um, 
watching a clip. I think it was Frank Saravalli today said he expects Patrick Kane to play at over a point per game pace, which would be an improvement from what he did last year. And I don't know if I'm there yet, but I love that the hockey media world thinks that's a possibility. Patrick Kane, the new JT Confer. No, I'm kidding. So the timeline for Patrick Kane you know, they said on Wednesday, I believe that he was about seven to 10 days out. He said the earliest he can see himself maybe playing, and I, I'm sure this would be a goal for him. Tuesday, December 5th, Detroit plays Buffalo in Buffalo. So that's Kane's hometown game. And actually, Buffalo was the team that a lot of people thought Kane was going to go to. So that would be quite poetic. It does seem a bit early on the timeline, and the team didn't seem in a rush to get him in. So even if he feels good right now, there's one thing to be in shape and there's one thing to be uh, NHL game shape. And we've seen players miss training camp, miss games and take a long time to get up to speed. So I don't know that Buffalo will be how it works out. So that might put him at the San Jose game on the seventh, the Ottawa game on the ninth, or even as late as the Dallas St. Louis road trip on Monday and Tuesday, December 11th and 12th. So we'll see by mid December, we're going to have seen Patrick Kane and, and we'll know at least early returns on how he might contribute. Kind of makes sense to me to start him at home so you get him in the matchups you want. Doesn't have to start on the road. Like him coming back in Buffalo becomes a big deal. I mean, this already is a big deal, but I think, you know, doing it at home kind of insulates the team and Patrick Kane from some of that perimeter noise that will be generated. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe the seventh or the the Saturday game against Ottawa, just, just to, you know, put people set people up for success yeah that's a really good point evan we will see how it goes along let's jump into two of the red wings games that have been played since uh, the last time we spoke again you the listener you'll be wondering where is the montreal game that happened that will be talked about next episode by evan and brad for now let's talk about the rangers game it was on the road on wednesday obviously the whole Focus of that day will have been the Patrick Kane signing, but Detroit took a 3-2 loss to the New York Rangers, and we were talking about it pre-show, Brad. That was an extremely frustrating game for a lot of different reasons. I think I've never seen Red Wings so consistently boarded in one game without all of them being called. Like, Goss's Bear missed like, the rest of the game after being hit from behind by Cooley. Cooley then got jumped by Costin, and then Debrinkit took a I, I I don't know. Am I crazy? Am I being a homer? That was a textbook board by Kreider on Debrinket. It was. Uh, this game was frustrating on all levels. The Red Wings, let me get this out of the way. The Red Wings lost that game because the Red Wings were the second best team that game. They played like crap. Um, I understand the all the hype with King coming in, but then Larkin not playing and all the ripple effects that has down the lineup. They had every excuse to walk in to Madison Square Garden, play one of the best teams, possibly the best team in the league, and lose. It's fine. But all around, it was miserable to watch the Red Wings. It was miserable to deal with those commentators, and it was miserable to deal with those referees. The referees especially. We were, what, four minutes into the game and shocked how bad some of the refing was. David Perron got a hooking call where Buddy grabbed his stick. We got... The, I don't even know what to call it. The cross check to the face, right on the face off to Joe Valeno, that wasn't called. And then, like you alluded to, all the boarding, even the 
Goss despair boarding penalty that was eventually called. If you watch that replay and you see the ref in the far corner staring at the play, his arm never went up. So either the ref that was at the other side of the rink called it or after the Costa jumped him, they went, yeah, maybe that was pretty bad. We should probably call something on that one. That whole game, every aspect of that game was a mess. Something that was really frustrating for me was the, the commentary on Debrinket and him being boarded was that Debrinket was in a vulnerable position. And, you know, for any younger kids listening or, or anyone wondering, he actually was in a vulnerable position. Like, he did it to make a play. He, he needed to get the puck off the boards and he chose to make that decision. But in general, if you are a few feet off the boards like that, your back is to the player coming into you like that. Like, yeah, you're in a vulnerable position. But the part that made me frustrated was as if that was justification for the boarding. If a player turns last second and in the process of be, of receiving a hit puts themselves in a vulnerable position, that's when the onus is on the person receiving the hit. Kreider saw Debrinket's numbers the entire way, hit him in the numbers, and did not change. Like the, His trajectory was into Debrinket's back the entire way. Is it frustrating as a hitter to see a player in that position? Yeah, absolutely. But when he starts in that position before you initiate the check and he finishes in that position as you're initiating the check, I'm sorry. It's on Kreider to not deliver a dirty hit. And he did. And I think the previous you know, boarding call that was called that maybe the rest didn't want to led them to not make that call. They also probably had a little bit of like secondhand embarrassment by the the Lucas Raymond situation. And what happened with that was Raymond was skating up the left wall. Cooley was trying to stick check him. Raymond tried to pull a smart move, grab Cooley's stick and, you know, throw it behind him. <laughs> Hilariously, what happened was the stick rode up and Raymond literally grabbed this, the stick and unintentionally smacked himself in the face with it. Got a drew a double minor penalty, but that was reviewable, and the referee saw that that was obviously it wasn't Cooley's fault, so they called it back. The commentary was as if Raymond had done it on purpose. No, Raymond didn't cut his mouth open on purpose. He was trying to throw the stick behind him. Anyways, I think all that led to just the refs making some really weird calls. It was just a bizarre night for commentary and refing overall. I would agree with you, but the like inexcusable officiating started in the first couple minutes of the game. Like, it oh, was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're it totally was right. bad from the get-go. And I historically have been hard on the refs, but I've always prefaced it by saying, I understand why they got this wrong, or I understand it's a hard job. This was one of those games that it was neither. This was just bad. This was, I don't know if it was incompetence, uh, over... I don't even know what to call it. Trying to game manage way too much. And it it was just brutal. And the commentary didn't help. And again, I almost never singled out a commentator on um, the As podcast. As you hear Brad tame his dog, Roxy, who's making I know, I think she's her first podcast me. appearance. She wants yeah. to play so bad right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's better if she's down here bothering me than the kids sleeping upstairs. But still... No, and I, I hate singling out commentators and announcers because I know it's such a hard job. But holy hell, they were making the refing situation worse by getting everything wrong talking about it. Debrinket did put himself in a bad situation, but instead of highlighting that, maybe highlight that the onus is still on the hitter to not make the hit. Maybe, I don't know, don't insinuate Lucas Raymond 
cut himself on purpose. Like you could see his hand flare out and to the back. 400 IQ play. It was what a warrior. I would make a joke that a second grader could say he didn't do that on purpose, but it's not even a joke. I was watching the game with Mika. She's a second grader. She could see and said, wait, he didn't mean to do that. And she also, as a funny aside, got really mad about how many Rangers replays they showed and so little to the Red Wings, to which part of me was understood where she was coming from. But the other part of me was like, yeah, make it. But the Red Wings haven't done anything in 30 minutes. What are they going to show? But yeah, it was the commentating only highlighted and made the frustration with the refing even worse. And I, I don't know if the refing was as bad as we think it is. I don't know if we think the commentating was as bad as we thought it was. I don't know if we thought the Red Wings were as bad as we thought they were. But the culmination of all three just led to a miserable experience that probably made everything seem worse than it actually was. I've, I think we're just spoiled with Ken and Mick. You know, then we have to go to the national broadcast and it's just not the same. Yeah, knowing that they're going to be back the next night absolutely made that better. And like you said, Brad, I don't think Detroit had a terrible game. It wasn't their best game, but you know what? They were on the road. They were in Madison Square Garden. They were without Dylan Larkin. And again, for the Chicago game, I don't think it was their best game. I think Huso actually had a good game. And, you know, some other positives, Fabry scored, and that was his fifth goal in nine games at that point. And he scored more again against Chicago. Uh, Sider scored on the power play. So, you know, not all negatives, but not the... Not the worst outing Detroit had, but not a great one. And overall, it was, yeah, you were happy there was a game the next night. I think Red Wings fans would have been happy knowing if at the start of the game, you'd say, hey, they'd be up 2-1 on the road against New York with 10 minutes left in the third. I think every single Red Wing fan would take that. And I think every single Red Wings fan would have predicted exactly how it finished. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's move forward to the Chicago game, which for us... Uh, just concluded not too long ago and I want to start by saying it's always a good night to beat Chicago and how heart-wrenching it must be in a beautiful way for Red Wings fans to observe for Chicago fans that they watched Patrick Kane go to the Detroit Red Wings and then promptly went to Detroit and got their asses beat 5-1. You know I saw a tweet from uh, uh, Blast Drill on Twitter he was like uh you have to imagine what this is like for Hawks fans. This is like Datsuk, Zetterberg, Lidstrom, or Iserman or someone going to the Chicago Blackhawks. Like, it was tough for us to see the whole Datsuk to Arizona jokes. He didn't even play a game there. For me, growing up, Brendan Shanahan was my favorite ever player. It was extremely tough seeing him go to other teams. And then now, you know, heading up to Maple Leafs, that's like, it, it tears my childhood apart. And Chicago fans have to watch literally the greatest like for, for so many of them, like their favorite player of all time, the greatest American player of all time, go to their most hated rival. And then they get thumped 5-1 directly after. It'd be like Chris Chelios going to the Red Wings. Like, <laughs> I don't know how they could stomach that. If at this age, Patrick Kane can deliver the same Red Wings half of his career in Detroit like Chris Chelios did, oh, that would He's be He's going to play another 10 years, but in Detroit. <laughs> This was one hell of a game. Detroit started out hot. It was JT Confer scoring right away off of a good feed from Cop. 
and you knew this was going to be the kind of night. I don't think Chicago was necessarily even bad tonight, but this you knew this was going to be the kind of night where Detroit came back. It was a shorthanded goal by Comfer from Cop, and then after Chicago tied it, Robbie Fabry scored what might go down as the goal of the year for the Red Wings and absolutely one of the goals of the year in the NHL. This is like the fourth episode I'm saying this in a row. This is why I had that rant about don't give up on Robbie Fabry just because he's injury prone. Yeah, that's a reality. Yeah, that's going to continue to suck. But when this dude is on, he is electric. Like that is Robbie Fabry directly after he was traded to Detroit level of excitement. This dude's hot right now. The goals per 60 is starting to catch up to the eyebrows per 60, which folks, that's a lot. It's... It's very much a lot. We're going to make the trade was one for one jokes again soon. So apologies to any Dilla Rose fans out there. Robbie Fabry scored that unreal highlight reel goal. What was Mickey's quote? I'm looking up at the the, the scoreboard and there's a jockstrap hanging up there and it's Kaiser's old boy. <laughs> there's been a lot of Mickeyisms this year. Sherratt had a Sherratt had a great game, like a really good game. He set up to Brinkett for a chance in front and then buried to Brinkett's rebound, which is a nice reward for him. Comfer again scored on the power play off of two back-to-back great feeds, first from Raymond to Perron and then from Perron to Comfer directly in front. And then Robbie Fabry scored his second of the game. That's seven goals in 10 games for Robbie Fabry, another power play goal. So Detroit ends up winning 5-1, total domination. Alex Lyon was outstanding once again. That's his third straight win. He stymied Connor Bedard on a great chance. And then you saw Connor Bedard slam his stick and his fist into the boards after like it was an all-around great bounce-back game for Detroit. It's one of those games where, you know, for everything I said about the Rangers game, you're shorthanded Dylan Larkin, you're on the road, you've got distractions, you have every excuse to go in there and lose. Well, the Chicago Black Sox, Blackhawks this year, no matter the situation, you have every excuse to win. And coming off a tough loss, you know, the Red Wings are nowhere near must-win territory, but... Had they lost to Chicago, this one would have probably derailed their momentum this year more than any other game. And again, the Hawks are terrible, but the Red Wings didn't have Larkin. So how were they going to handle that? So not just that they won, but that they went in and absolutely beat the brakes off the Hawks was a good reset after a tough loss. Yeah, you could see how losing this game would be a tough one on the mental psyche, then having to go back on the road Saturday playing Montreal and another team in the division. It could get it could have gotten away from them, but that's why Steve Eisenman brought in the depth. So when guys like Dylan Larkin aren't in the lineup, obviously not having Dylan Larkin in the lineup is a bad thing, but it helps soften the blow a little bit and uh the Red Wings didn't look like they uh, missed a beat tonight. So the Red Wings walking away with a close win, or close loss, I should say, to the Rangers without Larkin, and then on a back-to-back, a win at home, again, without Larkin against a team they should beat. That's a result I'll take. Two games back-to-back with travel without your number one center, and arguably on most given nights, your most important player. Like that's That's a decent result for Detroit, especially with the kind of cumulative play you saw from both games. Like, there's enough to draw from. JT Confer has been one of the best Red Wings all year, plain and simple. Robbie Fabry shows that Detroit has scoring depth when he's healthy. Uh, you're continuing to see production from Raymond. Wallman came back with two assists. Sherratt had a good game. Alex Lyon has been outstanding. Like, the power play is now clicking again after going two for 40-something. They're now, I think, over 30% lately. It's 
the Red Wings are playing good hockey right now. The kind of hockey that impressed Patrick Kane when he wanted to sign and the kind of hockey that still has him very firmly as a playoff team right now. All right. So the Montreal game again will be spoken about on next episode, which will be Wednesday, December 6th, which uh, mercifully for your ears will be without me. Uh, That will also include commentary on the December 5th game against uh, Buffalo and then after that will be the next episode will be December 10th, and that'll include the San Jose and Ottawa games. For now, let's jump into the Red Wings roundtable featuring Ken Daniels, lead announcer for the Detroit Red Wings, and Max Boltman of the Athletic Detroit. Again, this was pre-recorded some time ago. It was even before the Kane signing. So you'll hear us talking about it as if it was it was on Monday, November 27th. So we'll be talking about it before any Kane news kind of came out or was even close to being made official and before any of these recent games. So I think they had really great insights, and I'm looking forward to you hearing this. But again, remember, this was pre-recorded. So if you're going to come after anyone, come uh, after me for uh, pushing Max and Ken to record so early. So without further ado, this Red Wings Roundtable featuring Ken Daniels and Max Boltman. Tall task for you guys today. I, I did not give you an easy job. We have our first Red Wings Roundtable of the season. I'm joined by Ken Daniels and Max Boltman, and I just let you guys know that we are this is a real true pre-record. We're not recording, you know, 24 hours early. This is Monday afternoon on November 27th, and this won't go live until I believe December 3rd. So you're going to have to put your, uh, bring out your crystal balls, guys. (laughs) Oh, okay. Let's count the number of times we're wrong. Okay. Beautiful. I think we can just uh, pre-discuss what a, what a fascinating game it was to watch the Red Wings face against Connor Bedard and, uh, (laughs) We we can uh, make some bold proclamations, I guess, in hindsight. All right, folks, welcome to this special edition of the Winged Wheel podcast. This is a pre-recorded episode, so not typically what you're used to, but we have this roundtable. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. We'll see how I'm doing after uh, this airs and how wrong we are but uh, with the pre-record, but I'm glad to be here. And Max, as usual, thanks for stepping in for these roundtables. How has your life post-wedding and then sweet immediate Sweden trip uh, uh, been? That whole ordeal. Yeah, but nothing, nothing too different, right? That's kind of the nothing, as you know, nothing really changes. So no. uh, right, right into a road trip. It, it was uh, personally a very fun road trip. I think I had a little more fun over there than than they did. Uh, but they they're having a lot of fun since they came back, and that has been really interesting to watch because I, I thought there was a risk coming out of that trip that, you know, especially with two teams in New Jersey and Boston coming out the other side of it, it could have gone bad. And instead the opposite has happened. And I'm probably as, uh, as much of a believer in their playoff chances as I have been to, to any point in the six years I've covered this team at, at this time of year. I'll echo that thought as well. hundred percent. I think the league did a very good job in uh, giving the teams enough time off, like Minnesota had played one before the Red Wings beat them and the Red Wings had played a couple. But still, there was enough time off for the teams. I think the league handled it well. Getting four teams to go over uh, was terrific. And the buzz, uh, I really I really enjoyed it. And yes, coming out of that where the Red Wings did think at the time, they played well enough to win those games and they should have. And when you think about it, as we record this, Red Wings are nine and one leading after two and six and one at home because that Sweden game was a home game. So technically in North America, they're still perfect. Okay. I'm just going with that. They haven't blown a lead after two in North America yet, except for, um, the Toronto game and on home ice too. So yeah, they, they came out of that max really well. 
Now, it was said by, I think Goss Bear mentioned something after the last game, uh, their win over Minnesota, that Dylan Larkin kind of rallied the troops after the Sweden trip, wherein it was a disappointing result, and they stole one point, but probably could have had two, and the Toronto game kind of slipped away from them. How galvanizing of a moment does it seem like that trip was for the team, where uh, it was. It looked like they had nothing, and then everything, and then nothing again. Because, it, like you said, they kind of came together in a surprisingly positive way after those those uh, speeches, those storylines are, are catnip to us in the media, and I think for for a lot of the fans, you know, it, it, it's easy to for to, in hindsight for me to sit here now and say, yeah, it's a huge moment. It, it could have gone the other way when they got back, and I don't think anyone would be all that you know jazz. So there there is a little bit of uh, path dependency here in how we how we talk about it, but uh, I, I think that. It is a, it's a, what it really is, it's a sign of Dylan Larkin's continued evolution as a leader. And, you know, I think, I remember when he got the captaincy, I think a lot of the talk was about leading by example, how hard he took it every day, you know, how, how much he, he went after every game, after every drill, um, at a hundred percent. And I, I think you're seeing that now evolve as he gets into his late twenties and eventually into his thirties, that, that, that vocal element will be there too. I, I think that's something that, uh, you grow into a little bit as a captain. And I think you're seeing that. And, and I do think it was, it was well-timed in that case. Yeah. It was uh, literally and figuratively a wake up call because you can have the time change coming back from Sweden. And then Dylan's comments come in and Derek alone called Europe an emotional low, uh, considering how the team played, especially five on five and the breakdown. You don't want to fall behind Ottawa as you did. And they had to sit on that, as he said, for a long time because the league gave you time to come back from those games and gave you time to think. And then Dylan's words come in, what team do we want to be? And you had time to think about it. Now, hopefully, this is a sign of the team they're going to be. Now, like we mentioned, they came back, they beat New Jersey, a strong team. They beat Boston in Boston, which was a you know a really almost surprising result. And then the win against the struggling Minnesota team was good. Uh, again, we're recording this before New York, Chicago, uh, or their game on Saturday, December 2nd against Montreal. So things could change. But as of right now, Detroit is playing really steady hockey. Uh, Max, something that we said in our group chat before was this feels like more complete hockey than what Detroit was playing during their start of the season win streak. Does this feel like who the Red Wings are, their identity, what they can be doing more or less over the course of the rest of the season? Or do you think there's a risk of this being a flash in the pan, same as the start of the year? I think all year... We're going to watch them ride highs where they're playing like this and like they did in those first five or six games. And we're going to see them go through lulls like they did. Not so much even necessarily in Sweden, because like Ken mentioned, they played well enough to win both of those games, I thought. Leading up to Sweden, I thought that they had hit a, a lull, a rut, whatever you want to call it, where they weren't as impressive. And even on some nights where they get the result, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, you know. And so I, I think that this is going to be a team that, that has runs of really good play where everything is clicking. And, and just because they're not necessarily a team that has gone through all this together, at least there are a lot of players who have been through uh, long runs individually. I think there's going to be a little bit of ebb and flow to it. But I do think, you know, they're, they're much more capable of having four, five, six of these kind of runs in a year than, than at any point that I've covered them. And I think, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. The depth is a big one, but I also just look at, you know, kind of the, the bottom of the lineup, a guy like Christian Fisher, who, who knew what to make of him coming in this year? Every single night, I feel like I see Christian Fisher do two or three things that I'm like, man, I don't know if they've had a guy on the fourth line who can set the tone like this on the four check and just, 
I, I don't really ever feel like I ever see him have a bad shift. I don't know. Maybe not always like a, a goal, but it doesn't ever seem like he's having a really terrible shift. And so that's the kind of thing that I think can stabilize you from having too long of those lulls. Agreed. And that, that fourth line is giving you some good minutes and Costin's a big body and Sprong gives you uh, evidence that he, that he can score goals for sure. And the big thing right now is the goal differential. As we record this, second only uh, Boston in the division and Boston and the Rangers in the Eastern Conference. And I think that's important because, you know, I don't really know if they're certain as we record this who their number one goaltender is. That will have to flush itself out. But right now they're scoring enough goals to offset that. And I said this and probably on the Winged Wheel podcast earlier in the season. I said the Red Wing, the backup goaltenders can't go 500 for this team to make the playoffs. If, if they're playing 30 games and who knows if, if Huso's playing just 50 now and maybe it's looking closer to that than it ever would for 60. But if they can't be 500, the backup goaltenders and right now they're right around there. They're four, three and two as we record this. It's going to have to be a lot better. Um, including Reimer, even though the save percentage is there, Huso's going to come up. So, the long-winded answer to that is I think they got to figure out who's going to be their, their mainstay and goal, and hopefully one of those figure that out because they're scoring enough now, but I'm not certain that's going to continue to offset goaltending that isn't stellar. It's a great point, Ken, because I, th- I think if you look at the Red Wings in, in the scope of the whole league, I'd call them maybe average at best in starting goaltender, but I'd probably call it a little below average. But no matter who the starter is, that's true. But no matter who the backup is, I think they should be above average in the backup goalie department. Mm-hmm. And so if you can get what you call call the number, 30 games, 32 games, you can get 20 to 21 wins out of your backup goalies. That, I think, is where you bridge the gap to, to whatever you know the deficit is in, in the starting goaltender. And that's whoever it is. I, I think you're looking at three guys who – you know, are, are probably pretty close to one another in, in raw ability. I'd maybe put Lyon and Huso ahead of Reimer a little bit right now, but um, I think that's true across the board. Yeah, and and the other, you know, even Reimer in the Florida game gives up the one out of his glove, and that goes in you as good as he's been. And say percentage-wise, you can't have that one just deflate you. And I think Newsy has said that too, probably. You can't have the bad goals because uh, this team scored enough to to offset some of that. But you 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 need somebody to grab it, whether it be the starter or, or the backup. You need somebody to set that aside. Let's talk a little bit more about Alex Lyon. Uh, something that's been shared to us in sentiment by people who know goaltending. I've asked some uh, goaltending professionals from around the league. Uh, one of our listeners, Cody Stark, is a goaltender, a goaltending coach, and he's talked a lot about Alex Lyon's rebound control. So, you know, Lyon has come in and, and done well. I think it was really, everyone was really impressed by the fact that he came in as cold as cold can be on a back-to-back in Sweden against a t- talented team like Toronto. And he came in and performed really well. The 16 safe shutout obviously wasn't the toughest shutout of his career, but it was still one that he did. And he made the saves he needed to against Minnesota. What do you make of the sentiment that Alex Lyon is a talented goalie, but a very steady goalie, one who doesn't give up a lot of rebounds and one whose positioning and predictability is very sound and thus a, you know, middling defense like Detroit's can play a lot more confidently in front of him? Yeah, I buy that. I I think he is kind of the the steady guy, and I think to a degree, I think Huso can be that too. Neither of them kind of has that Alex Nedeljkovic to them, where it's going to be the spectacular save, but it might not always be the routine one. I I think you can kind of count on both of those two, uh, and and actually, I think you could probably say this about all three goals. I don't know Reimer. I think you could see swim from time to time a little more, but um, but I think it, it's really across the board. I think there is a little bit of a you know make the easy save, and that is why to Ken's point. 
the easy save is so important because if you don't have that, then uh, that's kind of what you're banking on with those guys who might not get you the spectacular quite as often. Yeah, they're they're very happy. Oh, Alex, you know, you get 15 games and you're just practicing. You're out there after. You're taking extra shots. So they can all be team guys. But then you come in, you have that presence of mind just to do what you need to do and keep it simple. Uh, that's important for Alex Lyon. As we record this uh, prior to the Chicago game, uh, Husso's allowed four goals against three times. And the Red Wings have still won the games. It's the second time he's had 11 starts as of this one. And only twice has he allowed fewer than three goals. 13 straight at home. He's given up four or more going back to last season. Wow. Think about that. That's yeah. a lot. And yet you look at Husso's save percentage, not great. And yet his record, seven, three and one, pretty good. And that is again, back to my point where the Red Wings have outscored him on the good side. So you get a guy in there who's capable like Alex Lyon and settles things down and Husso maybe isn't overplayed at all. Maybe he starts to find his game too. That's why it's so paramount that one of the, the backups just takes it. And maybe Husso a little less playing time, he settles back in. Because he's been okay. It's not like he's been bad and his, his record shows it. But you need stability there. And maybe Lyon can do that. And you know what I was thinking about the other day? I, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Lions played three games here. But just as we talk about how much of a share can Huso seed, coming into the year, I think we all kind of felt for good reason that Huso was going to get the, the no pun intended, Lions share of the, of the starts and goal, you know, 50 plus, maybe 52, 55. But if Lion is the hot one here, it's not like he's that much older than Huso, and they have the exact same amount of term on their contracts, if Lyon does stay hot, and I'm not ready to say that they're at this point yet, but if Lyon for the next two weeks is giving you every time he's in the net a really good outing, I don't think there'd be anything wrong with get, with turning it over to him and, and flipping kind of that ratio. We're not there yet, but I was just thinking about it the other day, and there's nothing really age or contract-wise anymore that says that that is really that much more in the better interest of the Red Wings. Right. And, and at some point, I don't know if they carry three goalies all year, but if somebody gets hurt and you're also going toward a playoff spot and you're still in contention, that becomes a problem too with depth that you may not have in Grand Rapids at this juncture. So you want to protect yourself. But I'm certain with the goalie market out there, and there are a lot of teams who are wondering, including Carolina, um, James Reimer has a modified no trade clause, but still at, at 35 can be moved somewhere. The deal's not crazy at 1.5. But at some point, something might give. It, 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 that'll be an interesting one to watch. They're almost playing chicken. Like it's to their detriment that nothing is broken across the league. The obvious answer here is what's Ken Holland, uh, Eisman's old buddy, doing in Edmonton. Right now, you can see the, the game being played. You know, Jack Campbell might be our solution, which is just a the cousin of Ken Holland saying, you know, Darren Helm is our trade deadline <laughs> acquisition. <laughs> but, you know, none of their three goalies right now would make it through if they tried to to waive any of them or, or move any of them for cheap. Like they they're almost forced to keep it to see what else breaks. Maybe that changes later in the year. But, yeah, it's it's a big wait and see moment right now. Well, and we saw with Vegas last year, you know, it, it, as much as you want to believe your two top goalies are going to be enough for you, sometimes you know, life happens and, and and the depth in goal 
is probably the most important place to be deep. You know, it's it's one of those weird things where your third string goaltender, you're, you're hoping that they play at most five games in the season. But those five games, depending on when they come, could make or break you. Yeah, I, I don't ever pretend to know more than an NHL coach. But whenever I heard Derek Lalonde or Steve Eisenman say, you know, they expect Huso to play such a massive share of games, 55, 60, whatever the number they threw it was, I couldn't help but think I, I just can't see that being sustainable unless Huso takes a massive step that we haven't seen him take prior. Because at the end of the last year, he looked worn out. I understand injury had a part of that, but yeah, I, I do think the part of the new NHL and just based on the personnel they have, they have to lean on a little bit from each guy until something breaks. I, I don't think you're going to see more than 10 goalies per year really hit that 60 plus territory anymore. I, I think you're going to limit that to the Vasilevskis, the Hellebucks, the Ottinger, Shesterkin, Sorokin. Yeah you know, Soros kind of guys. And and I don't know that the list is too much longer than that one I just rattled off. I think you nailed it. Yeah, because look what Boston's doing. Now those two, sure, as we record this, the past two games, bit of a slide, but you expected some regression as good as they've been. But they're alternating virtually. They went, they went 16 games before they broke the alternating of the goalies, um, Allmark and, and, and Swayman. But yeah, it's, if, you, if you get two, you can rely upon no matter what their pedigree is. If they work together, that's it works. So we talked about Detroit outscoring their problems, and I admittedly have had a hard time believing that this would be sustainable, but, you know, a quarter of the way into the season, they're still scoring goals. Not, you know, five, six, seven a game every time, but quite a few times you're able to see that their offense is coming, even when it's not all from Larkin and Dabrinka, because they had a little bit of a cold spell there. Has Detroit truly become a team that can score at a reasonable pace, at a, you know, playoff contending pace? Uh, are you still kind of thinking, is there going to be a regression over the last 75% of the season? I'm buying it. I, you know, I, I was not buying it through 10 games and I'm there now. And I, I think a big part of that reason is I think JT Comfort has been outstanding. And I, I, you know, he's not even one of the ones who's really scoring all that many goals, but you just see what a smart hockey player he is. And it almost feels like the Red Wings now have two centers that they can put an offensive player with and expect that production to not miss a beat. And, you know, like you, like you said at the top, we're recording this before we hear a decision on Patrick Kane, but I was thinking about this. How do you organize this if the if the Red Wings were to get Patrick Kane without sucking us into a rabbit hole that'll get outdated? Like if, if we don't have to call it Kane, we could call it another player, right? If the Red Wings had another player, and that could happen, you know, this year it could happen next year down the line. Um, I, all of a sudden, I think you, you're really trending toward a place where you can have two legit scoring lines in the top six, and then your third line wingers are guys like Fabry and Sprong. Uh, who, or, or cop, you know, cop down the middle, probably, uh, could it be, could be Valeno, right? Like all these different guys who I think you can count on for a reasonable amount of offense. And that is that true three to four lines of, of scoring, even though you're not going to lean on the bottom six too much that, you know, teams talk about. And I, I think the Red Wings are getting there. We talked about them like the Kraken. I, I see that vision for last year. And I think, you know, I've heard other people throw out the Kings. They're not there yet, but, I don't know that they're that far off from, you know, one or two players off from being able to have that kind of thing. Maybe not quite so much this year's Kings, but the, t- the Kings teams we've seen the last couple of years who who are playoff teams and, and who cause some problems in the playoffs. Yeah, and their depth down the middle, particularly for LA. And then I wondered, you know, when Cop and Comper were on the same line, it really wasn't working. I certainly expected more from Michael Rasmussen this year. Maybe it's, it's just the minutes. I also thought, and I said it on 
with you, Ryan, earlier on this podcast that I thought the, the bottom six, however it shake out, could all have double digit goals. And I'm thinking of that time, you know, Costin, who's uh, just got the one so far, Sprong will, will be okay. Um, Rasmussen, you expect a little more from. Fabry should be okay if he's the bottom six. So who knows? If you can get that type of scoring from the bottom end would be great. Right now, I mean, the Red Wings, I look at the numbers as we record this, they're scoring four or more goals. They're 11 0 and 2. Scoring four or more. And that's pretty good. If they can still get that rounded offense, and no matter, as you said, and go down the rabbit hole with Kane, um, yeah, it's, uh, if in fact that happens, it's a pretty good distribution. Yeah. Yeah. With the whole adding, you know, Kane or anyone else, it almost seems like to me, uh, I almost tell myself in my head, like, don't get cute with it. Just because you're doing well now, it, it shouldn't mean that you're afraid of disrupting the line combinations or anything that's working in the future. Because I, you know, we were talking before we hit record, Ken, like, what do you do on the power play? And ostensibly, that's where Kane would have a lot of sheltered production. And do you want to put another roadblock in front of Raymond, for example? And then you think about it for a second, you're like, it never hurts to add scoring options. And Detroit's not a a team that has a recent history of contention to the point where they have the luxury of turning away talent. You're seeing that right now on a different level with JT Comfer. Not every signing has worked out, but look at what Comfer, Comfer and Goss spared being what they are, are the reason, the biggest, some of the biggest reasons why Detroit is in a playoff spot right now, right? Yeah, and, and, and Max, I'll turn it to you in a second. We showed the graphic on the game the other night, again, as we record this part of the Chicago game. But at the time, Ryan O'Reilly was leading the way. But those free agent signings, Comfort and Goss Despair, are right near the tops of point producing. And then you got new players joining teams to bring it uh, through a deal. And, and Comfort is a free agent right near the top of the league on those who've made Max impacts on their team. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons that I don't think an, another – signing would be a, a a problem for for the Red Wings is that I don't think really any of the prospects save for maybe Jonathan Berggren is having a year down in Grand Rapids that makes you feel like okay well they're going to need to be up by season's end you know Carter Mazur just got back so he's going to you know take a little time and we'll see where he's at but you know Elmer Soderblom's gone through a a, a really rocky start to the season um and and I don't think Marco Casper looks like he's ready anytime soon either I don't think there's anyone that's really blocked you know you talked about kind of Raymond on the power play the Brinkett's on the second unit right now I mean you're just talking about popping him over onto that second unit where sometimes they're playing a defenseman right now potentially or maybe you, you flip units around whatever I think they've got room for uh for a forward there and I think really what it is I, I think they're a kind of a toss-up playoff team right now but I think if you bring one more scorer in I think that needle starts to tilt in your favor just a little bit well Kane does give you the left shot right side where Raymond's right on right uh Gossa spares left on right I don't think Sider's been the power play guy this year that uh, perhaps they open and may still be okay that way you've got Jake Wallman but you've got Perron on that, uh, you know, on the other side with the Brinkett. Boy, you, you, you've got a lot of choices. So to Ryan's point earlier, the one who may, you're trying to find a spot for Raymond. And if in fact it's Kane, does it not preclude Raymond over there? But then if he goes to the other side, then it's either to Brinkett, Perron or Raymond on the other side. But it, you got two units, right? So it's like right now, is he taking Raymond's spot or is he going to take whoever's the, I don't even know who the, who the right wall is on power play two, but Debrinket's on power play two. I, I assume you're playing those two together, right? Well, Kane, Kane on the, on left shot, right side with Debrinket. And then you've got Perron, uh, right shot, left side. And then on the other side is Raymond. Uh, it would be, uh, righty on righty. So it's not the one timer, but that's where they had Goss to spare, right? For a time on that flank too. For a time, left, but they left, like, on the right. 
Yeah. And they like Raymond going downhill on, on his strong side there too. Like he, they don't necessarily prioritize Raymond on his one timer, right or wrong. And that's, okay. you know, Raymond's played with Holtz that way when, when Holtz is in that run time, one timer spot. So, you know, they, they've, they've liked him there. I think he's been good there. That's how he set up that beautiful yeah. Perron goal the other night where, you know, he's weaving through and then he's on his forehand to make that pass across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's that too. Right. Yeah. Before we get into, you know, the conversation of the actual playoff chances and that whole Thanksgiving conversation, which Ken Holland has seeded with the league, let's talk about the, <laughs> I'm saying this, Ken, because I think, I think, Ken, you're almost, uh, you're almost tired of hearing it because the season is starting later than, yeah. than what it was before, but we'll push that for a little bit. Let's talk about the individual players that the Red Wings have brought in. You know, we've talked about JT Confer being pretty much as advertised. I think after the Minnesota game, he has 12 points in his last 10 and then you have the other side of that coin, which is, you know, the other version of the conference signing, which was Andrew Kopp the year prior, uh, who's not really doing as much as what we hope this year, coming in a little bit healthier and not uh, coming rusty off that core surgery. What do you make of uh, the really high performers and some players you you want to see more from from the Red Wings through 20 games? Rasmussen is one of them. And I don't think, you know, I think a lot of us expected after kind of last season that he was a maybe a sneaky breakout candidate this year and it just for whatever reason that the touches haven't looked as comfortable um so that's one and and i think you know cop i think is always going to have good and and good stretches and then quieter stretches you know he's always going to be in tough matchups and and you, you never truly know how to quantify that i think you'd like more offense for for a guy who's you know making 5.6 i believe it is but i also think he plays an important role in the team and I don't know that he's exactly this player, but a guy that I always try to think of about with him is Alex Kalorn, who I think the percent of cap that Kalorn was making in, in Tampa's good years is very close to what Cop makes. And he was never really like a 60-point guy for them. He was always kind of a third-line guy who b- brought this heavy game and would bring you 40, 50 points. You know, until those last couple years in Tampa, which were not their cup years, he was not this like 60-point dynamo. He was right in there in the 40s and 50s. And that's, I think, where you'd like Andrew Cop to be. He's not quite on pace for that right now. But last year, he was 42 points. I think this year, I kind of thought he'd be right around 50. And at that number, for all the elements he brings, I think you'd love it. Um, can he get to there? I, I'm not ruling it out. I think they're that early in the year. I thought he looked quite good, and it's been a little quieter lately. Um, but you know, those are the, those are the highs and lows, the stretches, right? We just saw Dylan Larkin go like seven games with with one point or whatever it was. Yes, I think some will depend on where cops playing. Although, in the scheme of things, now whether it be a Perron or a Fabry or a Tyson Sprong uh, may help in that regard. Um, when we had done the Minnesota game and I was uh, looking at uh, Joel Erickson Eck, who was a 20th overall pick in 2015 and Rass went uh, earlier than that at, at nine, uh, two years later than that. And I was looking at the numbers and Joel Erickson Eck really didn't produce until year five, which is pretty much around where Rasmussen is now, his fifth yeah. pro season, where I was hoping, I said, you know, two big bodies and those picks and not much offense prior to, although Rass had done in the Western League most of his stuff on the power play. And I thought, boy, year five. And then I looked at Erickson X numbers where he had 29 points, 30 points, 49 points, 61 points, up to 17 this year. And I'm thinking, no. 
It's not. And I was sort of hoping that, you know, Rasmussen may be on that same trajectory as just high Ericsson Eck, just the, the same type of body and plan. And, and really it probably won't be. So it was almost like disappointed to see it, but, but hopefully Michael can find it again. Cause last year you, you had that, you know, he was really starting to play. And, but does that come down to minutes for him? I'm, I'm not sure. Does he need the minutes or is he going to be what he is and how concerned are the Red Wings? And he's in a contract year. Not that points are the be-all and end-all for him, but he is in a contract here. Is that weighing on him? It obviously isn't weighing on Raymond yet. I don't know about Cider, but is it weighing on Rasmussen? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, just watching it, it just it's 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 not even really like he's skating hard. He, he's in the same areas that we're used to seeing him. It's just when the puck finds him, it felt like last year it was turning into offense in ways that it isn't this year. And I don't know if that's a if that's a trend. I mean, it's, it's obviously a trend. I don't know if it's something that you could boil down a, an explanation to, or if it's something that's that's uh, just got to kind of work its way out. But it, you know, the, you talked about points not being an end all be all, but in, in terms of contracts, they are what uh, guys ultimately get paid off of, right or wrong. That is how it works. And so, um, I wouldn't be a shock if it is weighing on him. But I haven't had him say that to me or anything. Yeah, he had he had twenty nine points last year. When I just looked the numbers now, that was basically. Eric Sinek, uh, around the same yeah, time as Age 23. As him. Yep, yeah, exactly. Around at at age 23, time. Eric Sinek was 29 points and it was in more games. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But you, you hope to see that same, but I, I, I'm not sure if he does. That would be great. Maybe it just takes another year. Everybody <laughs> progresses at a different level. So we'll see. We talked about the goalies and, and the forwards at large. The defense is a big one for Detroit this year. And, Quite honestly, uh, I was expecting a little bit more, I don't know, robust of a defensive group for Detroit. I think part of that has to do with, even though it's changed a little bit recently, Mo Sider had a tougher start to the year in terms of, you know, actual defensive play, the decision making, the kind of hockey IQ that you've seen him demonstrate early on in his career. The, The Jeff Petrie signing has not really gone as people have expected. And then on the other side of the coin, you have Shane Gossespierre being lights out most nights for Detroit and you know Sherrod I think we're seeing largely a a different version of him in a a much more positive direction this year compared to last so what do you make of the defensive group so far I got to give a lot of credit to Sherrod because that Ottawa game obviously really bad like there's just no way around that one on the season he is the Red Wings uh, most effective defenseman by expected goals against per 60 of all of them he's given up the least of of all their defensemen and I don't know that there's a lot of people out there who would have made that prediction coming into this year after the way that last year went at times obviously I do think some of that is Sider and Wallman really are eating some crazy minutes and tough matchups now but but it's not like they're they're giving uh Sherratt much shelter here he's played well and and he's you know to his credit been effective in a um it's been a step forward, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So that that has stood out to me. I'm not that worried about Cider. I, I think when I watch him and Wallman, they're still pretty much in control of the game, and um, the numbers are, you know, reflective. I think of of how big that workload is and how tough that workload is. But they're both still producing. They're both look in control of this game. I I think on the whole, the defense core has been pretty good. You can pick your spots. I think Petrie's had nights where you, you see the age, and I think that that matters. Um, but by and large, I think the defense core has been pretty good, especially of late. Yeah, and where you go back to last year, if you remember what the Red Wings had in the six, seven, and eight position to where they are now, right? They're uh, they're just a heck of a lot deeper on the back end. So you see that when a Jake Wallman goes out of the lineup, and you can 
<laughs> and step right in there and not really miss a beat. I wonder if, if Jeff Petrie were available earlier, if the Justin Hall signing on another right side would have happened, but it gives them the depth where you're, you're not worrying about an Osterley or a Lindstrom coming in. All these guys can play and you see that and magnified when Jake Wallman goes out. And as we record this again, prior to the, the Blackhawks and Rangers games, um, Red Wings, think fourth top five in the league in defense points, 56 or something like that. That's pretty good. So they're getting it from the back end too. And again, even the Petrie sign, I don't know. I don't know. You, you say Max, not as expected. I get it, but I don't know at his age and he was going to play every game and you have the depth for him not to. I didn't really expect much from him. He can fill in on a power play when you can. The, you know, as age factors in, he's not going to be the be all and end all defensively, but it's been okay in light of who they could have had there. I would rather have him there than, than someone else. I know you're thinking, of, you're thinking of Edvinson. Are you thinking yes, that? I am. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're both about to See, say it. I knew where you were going to go with that, but I don't know. Uh, he's been really good, and, and he's been really hot of late. He's up to 10 points in 15 games down there. I know that's not everything, but when you watch him, the way he skates, he can move the puck, some of these breakout passes, I just think he's ready. They're not going to clear a spot for it, but that is the one guy who I would say, especially when we talk about the alternatives, man, yeah, I, don't, I don't think anyone expected him to be completely as healthy as he was to come in. And that is a mitigating factor there, uh, probably even in, in making the Petrie trade, if I had to guess. But I, I think that time's getting close, I have to say. Well, is it is it close? Be, where this team, and let's say you go for another f- two, three weeks now, and you're, you're staying, you're hanging right in there. Is that the time to do it, to bring in an Edvinson, barring any injury? I, or is it, I won't, don't want to go back to the many years ago of the overripe conversation. But you know, do you? the way I the way I see it, Ken, is it's almost the same as like the the justification for bringing in Kane. You're scoring a lot right now, but that doesn't mean you don't bring in an option to maybe improve. The Red Wings defense, yeah, you you guys are probably more right than me in that they're they're not doing as poorly as maybe it's being framed. But at the same time, there have been situations wherein a defensive lapse, like it's just straight up a defensive lapse, has cost them goals or even a game. You don't have to go too far back to find it. So. You bring in Edvinson, yeah, maybe the same thing happens, but then you have the value of he's learning as he's going. You, you, young defensemen need reps in the NHL, and he can do a little bit more at his age uh, and with the the ceiling he has. So it's definitely a risk. I don't think you're wrong, Ken. Um, it's definitely a risk, and you don't want to shake up something good, but I do think some of the limitations that Detroit has had has been specifically defensive lapses. Yeah, and, and I get Ken's point, though. Like, if you're in this playoff race, is that the best environment to throw this guy into? But I think it it all depends on if he continues this for the next two to three weeks, I think you're going to be at the point where you're saying, what other option? Because it's going to seem like he out, he's got, like, five points in his last three games right now. Like, it's it's just – and I'm, I know that could be different by the time people hear this, but uh, maybe it keeps up and it's, like, eight points in five games or something. And, and that's where I think overripe turns to, like, pick the fruit, you know? Okay, then do the Red Wings have to purchase an island that isn't Robida? Who's going there? Unless you have a long-term IR, what are you doing? You're if and especially and, and we can again where where this is being pre-recorded, we don't know the Patrick Kane. If you do and he comes and you got three goalies, you're at twenty-three. Who's moving? What are you doing without an injury? I'd find a way to figure out something for a goalie, I guess. I don't know. I, you're right. It's, it's, it's a numbers game. It's 23 roster spots. And, and if, you know, they have had plenty of time where they have carried 
you know, either 13 forwards in AD or I think even 12 forwards in AD when they did three goalies. So I think those are both options. But if, if you are bringing bring another, I don't know, there's so much up in the air right now to get down that road. But, you know, I, I think if, if it keeps up at this level, I just think you, you almost owe it to yourself to, to see what it is. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, there's so much, you know, variables here that I almost can't even start to try to put those puzzle pieces together, which, is probably what they're thinking and probably uh, a sign of how much harder this is uh, in practice than in theory. So you know what I'm waiting for? Where the Red Wings are 4-0 and going 11-7, and I can't see what they do going 10-8. and <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Four is going to love it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've skirted around the topic long enough. Let's jump into it. The Red Wings right now are in a playoff spot past Thanksgiving, past both Thanksgivings, because I know some people try to use either benchmark, but they're 20 games into the season. We're recording this on the 27th of November, and Detroit is in the third divisional seed, tied on points with Florida. Tampa Bay also has 25 points, but one more game played. No matter which way you cut it, though, the Red Wings are in the mix. Talking about that benchmark, you know, uh, 11, 12, 13 of the 16 teams seem to make it, never more than that, that are in around Thanksgiving. Is this real for Detroit? What do you expect? How, with the rest of the Atlantic Division shaking out how it is, how much do you see them being able to maintain this pace or that standing with how they've been playing? Well, right now the pace is, what, 101 points? I don't know that I quite see that, but I think... The sample has been long enough that we can say that the Red Wings look like they're going to be a team that is in this mix. And it's going to, like I said earlier, I think it's going to include lulls. And I think it's going to include, you know, roaring stretches. And I think we got to be careful as, you know, people around the team to not do our, uh, make our declarations at, you know, right in the middle of that hot stretch or right in the, at the bottom of that low point, because that both are going to be present. But I think I, see a team right now that I expect to finish in the 90s and some years that's enough and some years it's not and this is the most hedgy answer ever I guess but that's kind of what I expect last year I think it took 92 I think they're going to get to 92 at this point um, other years it takes 97 98 and I think one year in in recent memory in the east it even took 100 and I don't quite see that so I think there's somewhere I, I think I came into the year saying 87 or 88 I think I'm now up to like 92 93 and We'll see how that changes. Some years that's enough and some years it's not. Well, if only they were in the West, it would be enough. Uh, it's going to be a lot lower than the East. I predicted 90 points uh, at the start of the year. So I, can I go with that to 93 or 94 now like you, Max? Uh, perhaps. Is that enough? Uh, we don't know yet, but they'll they'll be in the mix. And if they're in the mix, then maybe we don't have to worry about Gosses Bear being traded at the trade deadline. <laughs> maybe it becomes a sign for a longer term. We'll we'll see about that. But uh, just love to be in the mix past uh, March the eighth, where you're not you're thinking about maybe adding something rather than uh, subtracting. Seems arbitrary, but I remember in recent years, you know, December has just been typically a really rough month for Detroit. Even on hot starts, it seems to be when the wheels fell off. And I don't get that same feeling this year. I think a lot more of the play seems sustainable. Even, you know, they have a lot of banked points from their early hot stretch, but none of that really has been, you know, Vili Husso standing on his head, for example, which is what we saw in the past. So I feel a little bit more hopeful going through December, but I have a hard time saying that, yes, Detroit will absolutely be one of those teams in the mix for a divisional seed until maybe we hit that January 1 mark. A lot of this is also, let's call it what it is, it's aided by the fact of 
some shambolic play from other should-be Atlantic contenders. By all rights, this should be Toronto's division this year. And, you know, they're 10-6-3 through their first 19. That's very obviously a team that can be performing at a much higher level than that. I'm not sitting here saying bet, bet on the Toronto Maple Leafs to get it together. That's an easy way to lose money historically. But I do think that's too talented of a team to be playing at that level all year. You know, Matthews is going to find his pace again. Marner is too good of a player to be as um, unproductive as he's being right now. Florida didn't start so well, got healthy, and is now, you know, playing like one of the best teams in the Atlantic or in the East overall. Does Vasilevsky coming back change Tampa Bay's dynamic? I can see a situation here where Detroit, by and large, plays as well or close to as well as they've been playing right now, but just by virtue of really talented teams on paper playing the rest of the year, uh, they're just going to get pushed down the order that way. Yeah, I, I you said it all there, I think. I mean, I think it's, you know, there, there's teams below them that, that you expect are going to pass them, and there's teams that I think could come back to the pack, but I think a, a lot of the... the um, well, there's not that many teams above them right now, I guess, but I'm saying there's, there's, you know, Montreal, for example, would be a team that I think has, uh, got off to a start that I, I don't, I have a hard time envisioning them keeping up over a full season, for example. And I think there's room to, it's already actually started, I think, recently in these last four or five games for them. But, um, I, I think Florida's legit. You know, I think Tampa's going to be there, especially now that they're going to have Vasilevsky night in, night out. So, I think they're fighting, you know, but, you know, Washington, Philly would be other examples in the East of, of teams that I think are, are in a playoff spot right now, if I'm not mistaken, that, uh, I don't expect to become the end of the season. And people might well say the same thing about the Red Wings. I, I, I like I just said, I think they're a toss up, uh, for a playoff spot, but, um, you, you are going to see teams catch up to them. That's, that's, there's no doubt about that. And where both of you in the last little while have said, I do. When it comes to the Red Wings, it's not what they will do. It's what other teams don't do. And that's what I had thought from day one when people asked me at the start of the season, will the Red Wings make the playoffs? Well, I said 90 points. So I would say that's not so much what the Red Wings aren't doing. It's what other teams are doing, push them down. As you said, I'm not a Toronto buyer, wasn't. I don't like their defense at all. And Brad Tree Living is going to have to do something there because I'd take Detroit's defense over theirs any day of the week. I really would. And I'm not sold on their goaltend either. So I didn't pick Toronto up there. I thought Florida, if they got through the first month without Ekblad and Montour, and they certainly did that. And, and now they're rolling and Tampa Bay got through Vasilevsky. They'll be okay. And Boston, I think, has surprised a lot of people with what they've done. And I think they'll still be okay. But I wasn't convinced about Toronto. So yeah, who are the Red Wings going to unseat? And that's where you're, you're hoping those other teams, Boston and those don't continue to do what they do. And, uh, Tampa, you, you got to look at it with Vasilevsky's going to be okay. And how's Bob in Florida? Bobrovsky? I don't know. He can be so hit and miss sometimes, you know, so, um, They'll be uh, on the verge, but again, I, I think they're they're going to be there. Close. Isn't it funny at, at the time of the DeBrinket trade? You know, the question was like, is it worth giving up that pick that that Boston pick that you know yeah. they're going to fall off? It could be such a valuable asset. Now it looks like it's going to be like the twenty eighth pick again, <laughs> right? So you have yeah. the choice: you give them Boston's and you keep your own. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It sure won't be a lottery pick. Another thing that's funny is that leading up to the season, every conversation about playoffs or not. Yeah, but Detroit and where they are in the standings always came coupled with Buffalo, Ottawa, and sometimes even Montreal. No one dared talk about Florida, Tampa Bay, Toronto, what they're doing. So uh, to turn the attention to those teams, they've had rough starts. You know, Buffalo, not terribly far behind Detroit, but 9-10-2 through their first 21. Montreal, same 20 points through 21 games. And Ottawa has been, you know, 16 points in 16 games 
it's been a really rough look over there. Do you see them, or at least Buffalo and Ottawa, joining the mix with Detroit? Or is this uh, kind of indicative that the consensus order of those three was wrong leading into the season? I think both are going to be better than they've been. And I, I actually, like, I've liked Ottawa whenever I've watched them. So I think they had a positive goal differential. They've played only 16 games. I think that affects the way that the standings view is, right? Because it's, you know, they're 16 and 16 games. That's a better point percentage than, you know, Buffalo and Montreal, at least. It moves them up to sixth and... I, I just think both of those teams are so talented. They're young. And I, I think, you know, Buffalo in particular, how young that blue line is and how uncertain it is in goal. Like you just don't know. But I, I think both those teams are too talented to stay uh, where they've been. But, you know, we'll see. They're also very inexperienced. And I, I think we've said something, some variation of that about Buffalo for the last, you know, at least a few of the last five years. Well, the Tage Thompson injury certainly hurt Buffalo. You can see that. Um Benson aside, it's good. Some good young players, the goaltending, where people were saying Devin Levi, you know, up for the caller, I'm going, a rookie? He's not Tom Barrasso. I mean, come on. So I didn't buy that conversation. So the goaltending, I'm not, not sure about there. Well, I am sure. It's not great. Uh, Ottawa, they don't defend well. They really don't. They're even that four nothing lead over Detroit. I, I'm not sure about Ottawa, how they defend. Can, can score enough. Yes. Um, so those two teams will improve, but you're right. That, that was the scenario. And, and because I think in large part, because the general manager said that at one point that they were ahead in the rebuild. So because they were ahead in the rebuild, the GM in Detroit decided we're going to get more veteran guys to bring them in and offset that. And so far that part is working. Yeah, that's been the kind of amazing thing is I think everyone thought that meant, oh, you know, five more years of rebuilding to make up for lost time. And instead, they went out and got now players to make up for for that. And I think uh, that was a, an interesting kind of development this season going out and, and getting, you know, okay, you're behind in the rebuild, but you're going to go get Debrinket. You're going to go get Comfer, Gossespierre. Two of those are longer term. One of them's not, but uh, at least for now. But, um, yeah, it, it does seem to have made up the ground. And, and you made the point about Toronto's defense, Ken. It's funny. I was just thinking about it. I hope they wouldn't mind me sharing this. But I had at least a couple Toronto media members make the point to me in Sweden that that, that Leafs team misses Justin Hall. And uh, I think it shows. Really? They did say that? That's yeah, interesting. Because the fans, two the fans ones, yeah. miss him like they miss Larry Murphy. I Not know. That it, they but- weren't wrong. But that's surprising to me. But you know what? There's always, there's always a scapegoat, right? And it's on every team. I don't want to make this a Toronto thing, but especially in Toronto, there's always a scapegoat. Yeah. Oh, we've never scapegoated any, anyone in Detroit. Never. No, no. I certainly couldn't rattle off who it was each year I've covered the team. No. <laughs> we've talked about the GM side of things. So let's move this into Steve Eisman's domain and out of Derek Lalonde's. Eisman made the moves he did over the summer. Some of them obviously have turned out extremely well. The DeBrinket one is easy to pick out, Confer, as we've talked about, etc. Aside from the moves he's made, though, what about the start of the season has changed what he might do for the rest of the season? You know, Ken, you alluded to maybe what a, a deadline strategy would have been for Goss Bear in his one-year contract. Is there anything about the, you know, the plan that Eisenman has to enact that's kind of the calculus has changed based on how they're contending so far this year? We're going to have to wait until that gets uh, into February, I, I think, to see. Um, and then he'll realize where his team is, maybe not as late into February as we had those two games in Ottawa when uh, the decisions were made for him. I think this team is different 
this year because of its depth and the veteran leadership as you look through this team, whether it be Perron and Comfer and Mata and Fabry, they've been there before. They all won cups and you add in Petrie now who's been to a cup final with Sherratt. Lyons been to a cup final. It just seems different. And Sprong, who had good success with the Seattle team last year, uh, it, it's, it's just different. There's a different feeling around the team. And if this continues and they're in contention, I think that's going to result in a, in how he thinks in February again, Max. I also don't think there's any of these pending UFAs that are going to get you a bounty, right? Like when he did this last year, yeah, there was marginal stuff, the Sundquist move, the Verona move, but there's not a Bertuzzi or a Heronic that's bringing you back a first round pick plus this time around, right? I think you're talking about, you know, what did Gossespierre go for last year? A third round pick? You know, maybe the value's up marginally from that, but he signed a one-year deal. Usually these things kind of tell you what the league market is for a player. I think that's true of Sprung. You, you, the one that's harder for me to quantify is David Perron because of how much playoff pedigree he has. Maybe it would be easy for us in the public to guess low on how teams would see him. I also think, you know, Newsy keeps talking about Perron is, is just so important to this team. I don't think they're going to treat that lightly, even if they are, um, you know, on, on the outside looking in at the, at the deadline. Doesn't mean they won't move him, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't see that like this huge temptation, like with Bertuzzi last year, where, you know, if, if you have to make this tough call, you lean out. Like if, if you're, if you're around it, why not hold on to some of these guys? You really care that much about a third round pick at this stage of this build? No. You're right. Yeah, 100%. And uh, Perron is, is so well-liked and so vocal. As the guys say, you, you don't hear from David. Just wait a second. You'll you'll hear from him. But it, it's in such a good way, and he's such a leader uh, in that room. Um, they love him. Yeah. I remember sitting with you, Ken, uh, the game where Bertuzzi broke his hand, I think, for the second time or the first time. And we were watching Perron on the bench. And you sit close to the Red Wings bench, you can really see how vocal he is in, in leading that team, how much of a presence he is for Detroit. Oh, yeah. It probably that would have been the second time, I think, yeah. for, for Tuesday. The first one was pretty early when he was playing goal uh, in New Jersey, I think, and <laughs> tried to do that uh, a couple of times. Yeah, so... Um, how they how they go again? Again, it's uh, hopefully uh, change the thinking, and they're in the mix, and they don't have to worry about a trade deadline. All right, last topic here before we wrap up. Lucas Raymond and Mo Side are both playing in contract years, and there's an interesting decision to be made, and not necessarily Steve Eisenman's decision to make, which is how long do you sign if you're either of them? You know, Lucas Raymond is having the kind of season that he he wanted to have so far, uh, one quarter of the way into the season. And Mo Sider, despite any criticisms, like he's still producing, still putting up points, is still Detroit's number one defenseman. The bridge versus long-term question is coming in. The dollar amount is is something that people are wondering about with a rising cap. What do you make of those two being unsigned, and uh, what direction do they move, or does the team move with them? I don't make a ton of it. I, I think that with Raymond in particular, you always wanted to see the plat the full platform year just to know what what it's going to be i still think it ends up a short-term bridge deal but certainly if he turns in like a 70 point year i think if you're the red wings you want to get that locked up long term um but there's always that you know because he hasn't had just like as meteoric of a you know pretty much start to finish there's been little lulls here and there for cider but um I think a cider you got to do seven or eight years. I almost think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't. Maybe you could get away with six. I think McCarr did six, but I think you want to lock in as long as you can, ideally. With Raymond, if you bridge, you bridge, but I think you're not going to get him 
much cheaper just as we see how he's improved this year. And I know he doesn't plan to be done improving. So, you know, it wouldn't shock me with Raymond in particular if this does stretch into the off season, just because you get the full, um, you know, the full sample. But with Cider, I I don't know what more you want to see from the guy, right? Like you already know everything that he can do and everything that he's going to be. And I don't know what more needs to be proven. Maybe it's just a matter of the negotiation. I, I think I'd have said the same thing. I probably did say the same thing about Dylan Larkin. It's not like Dylan Larkin needed to prove anything last year. It just took a while to, for them to agree on where it stood. And, um, like Dylan Larkin, I think waiting has driven the price up. I think when you look at the Jake Sanderson contract, the Owen Power contract, maybe even the Deline contract, though it's not a direct comparable because he's not signing it out of ELC. You see what uh, a good young defenseman is getting on a long-term deal. And I'll say this, Mort Sider has a longer resume and a better resume today than either Power or Sanderson did when they signed. I think those contracts are the floor if you go that length. So uh, be prepared to pay eight and a half, if not nine on a long-term deal for Moritz Sider uh, at some point. And I have no idea when that will be. So he makes, if, if eight and a half, would Steve hold to that as to not make more than Dylan's eight, seven, or does well, it matter? Did I say this on the show, Ryan? My prediction is that he signs a twin deal to Dylan and he he gets at the exact same cap hit because that cements an internal cap, doesn't it? If your best forward and your best defenseman are both making this, nobody's touching that, right? That's that's my theory, my conspiracy theory. I still yeah, say nope. Dylan should have signed for 8.71, his number, but he didn't. But anyway, so 8.7, so the, they're both the same. That's an interesting theory, uh, center and defenseman and age. I don't know if it holds true, but I like I like the way you think. All right. Well, I have probably done enough of giving you both the thankless task of talking about a team uh, and saying, don't worry too much about the future, but also asking a ton about the future. So uh, for this first edition of the Red Wings Roundtable, thank you both so much. Thank you, Ken, for stepping in on this one. I believe this is your first Red Wings Roundtable. I appreciate you both. If you, the listeners, want to show your appreciation, there's two ways to do it, and I encourage you to do both. Max's work for The Athletic Detroit is bar none the best sports writing you're going to find pound for pound in hockey. Go to Max's Twitter account at M underscore Boltman. Click any of the articles that he tweets out and subscribe from there. I promise you it's worth it. And with Ken, obviously with the phenomenal work that he does with the Jamie Daniels Foundation, you can always support that uh, by supporting Wings Money on the board. Uh, we'll leave links in the description of the episode to find out more about Wings Money on the board and how you can support the Jamie Daniels Foundation. So again, thank you both so much for your time and until the next Red Wings Roundtable. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay. Welcome back. That was our Red Wings Roundtable with Max and Ken. Always wonderful to have their insights and, and to see where they where the team is at going into the rest of the season now that we're more than a quarter of the way through. Let's wrap up with some quick NHL news. At the time of recording, it was pretty recent that Corey Perry came out with a statement discussing what led to, or actually less about what led to him being released by the Chicago Blackhawks, but rather an apology. I'll read it out here. He said, I would like to sincerely apologize to the entire Chicago Blackhawks organization, including ownership, management, coaches, trainers, employees, and my teammates. I would also like to apologize to my fans and my family. I'm embarrassed and I've let you all down. 
As a result of my actions, there's been speculation and rumors. I'm sickened by the impact this has had on others, and I want to make it clear that in no way did this situation involve any of my teammates or their families. Most importantly, I wanted to directly apologize to those who have been negatively affected, and I'm sorry for the additional impact to others it has created. My behavior was inappropriate and wrong. I've started working with experts in the mental health and substance abuse fields to discuss my struggles with alcohol, and I will take whatever steps necessary to ensure this never happens again. I hope to regain the trust and respect of everyone who's believed in me throughout my career. Once again, I am deeply sorry, Corey. So that's Perry's statement. Uh, the obvious takeaways here are the, the rumors about Bedard and such were absolutely just stupid internet rumors like we talked about last episode, and this was alcohol-related. So something happened with the team, with a team staff member, as Davidson pointed out, but um, other than being actually a, a comprehensive and real apology, like that's as much as we know, it'll trickle out over time as I feel like these things do, but it kind of puts to rest any, first of all, any of the, the stupid notions prior, but any also any kind of like Corey Perry fighting the fact that his contract was terminated. So that's as much of a bow that that story will get for now, I feel. Yeah. And just because he put the apology out there, the NHLPA might still push him to file a grievance just because they'd be concerned about the precedence this could set. You know, if he didn't break any laws and, you know, even David said this isn't a legal matter, he didn't do anything illegal. And, you know, players have had their contracts voided in the past. I mean, Mike Richards uh, literally tried smuggling drugs across the border, got his contract terminated and filed a grievance and got a lot of that money back. So even if Corey Perry knows he's in the wrong and as far as apologies go without knowing what he did, that does seem like one of the better ones we've ever read. It it still might be worth it just for the next guy who may not have justification for why his contract was terminated. And that's the role of a player's union. Other NHL news very quickly here. Nikita Zadorov, the first kind of domino to tumble out of Calgary was moved in division to the seemingly this year powerhouse Vancouver Canucks and in my mind for like not a lot a 2024 fifth round pick that originally belonged to Chicago that's conditional Calgary will receive the best of the fifth round picks that Chicago owns and a 2026 third round pick that belongs to Vancouver so a future third and next year's fifth like that's I understand Zadorov is more flash than actual substance as a player. Uh, a lot of his value comes from the physicality, the energy, the fact that he's fun as hell to watch on the ice. Very rock'em sock'em hockey, but he's definitely a valuable trade piece. I was expecting more. This is one of those players that happens every year where the media hypes him because there there is genuine interest and because he is a fun player to watch, you think that he's this player, but the rest of the league feels he's a tier below that. And, you know, it's not a bad return for Calgary, but even beyond the media hype of Zadorov, I genuinely thought he was going to get more than that. And I'm surprised Calgary didn't hold out longer to try and get more as teams got desperate and other teams got injured. And then to settle for that return in division, it did strike me as weird. Yeah, it doesn't really add up to me because I figured that demand would garner more than what the return was. I thought, you know, teams like Dallas, teams like Toronto, all looking for defensemen who are very much in win-now mode, who would be salivating to get a guy like Zadorov to shore things up. 
Yeah, when I when I saw the return, I was kind of scratching my head. And then, like you guys said, it's also in division. It This one doesn't make sense to me. I know Toronto had an offer on the table, probably as well as other teams, but it involved Calgary retaining salary. And Vancouver previously moved out Beauvillier in a trade to clear up the cap space to make this work, and were able to take on Zadorov's cap hit for the rest of the year i think that's ultimately what did it for calgary whether that was the right move or not i don't know uh, like you both have mentioned like a player like zadorov overhyped or not we have seen in the past go for more it seems to be you know you have to capitalize on the wave of where the vibes are going to get a lot for a player but i could see zadorov being a, a difference maker for vancouver the longer this goes the more i have egg on my face about vancouver i still think that maybe they're going to come back to reality but I don't know, man, what Hughes is doing over there, what Philip Hronick's doing over there. That's a team that's continuing to to show that they might actually be a threat in a wild, wild west right now. Okay, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Again, thank you so much for bearing with the disjointed nature of this one with all of it to some degree being pre-recorded. I promise you that's not going to be the case every time. Uh, This episode was remote. The next two episodes will be remote, but then we'll be back in studio after that uh, upon my unfortunate return. Thank you all so much for bearing with us. And to all of our patrons, there's no overtime this episode, but there will be again in the future. Uh, But we still want to thank you. All of our patrons are the ones who make this possible. Patreon.com if you want to support the Winged Wheel podcast. Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel podcast if you want to support the Winged Wheel podcast. To all of our name level supporters on Patreon, thank you so much. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Cider the Ass Kicker, Croner's Left Knee, Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Carl Brutana Nanaluski, Carl Provi, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Craig Kibble, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, D-Town Westside, Exquisitine Buble Schwinslow, Fergus Member of the Black Eyed Peas, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Al-Kassem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kaylin Wood, King Tone, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder, the Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Scree and Lube, Sprung 88 for Life, That's What I Appreciate's About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, Iser Plan Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, A.B., Adam Rose, Axel's Sandy Pelica, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Chuck Buffchest, the Tarpless Goon, Clappin' Bombs, Wheelin' Moms, Commander Ben Perrin of the Cheeseback Space Force, Connor, Connor Layton, and Corey Preda, Darren Fick, D-Boss Snip Show, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, James Laporte, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, Ophelia, Showtime in Hockey Town, Steven, The Hodag, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, Winging It in San Diego, ex formerly AA Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so very much. I'll talk to everyone in a week. Brad and Evan, good luck. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.